No, I, I was sort of in the. I was on the triathlon um, route before before Ironman had really got got rolling. I mean, it, it the first Ironman was seventy eight. The first major thing that most people recall from Ironman was seeing a Julie Moss video with her crawling across the line mm-hmm. in Kona, and you know, and just right. she'd been leading, and there's this tortuous bit of I think ABC footage where she's just can't control any of her bodily functions she can't stand up people can't help her she's crawling along a lead drive people are willing her to make it to the finish line the girl that's in second place passes it you know and i'm like wow what's this event i've got to find out more about this <laughs> this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpri. if you're active at all whether you're running or simply out walking for the day you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have and that's chafing Solpri's all new all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has been in the triathlon world for quite a while. He's been coaching triathlon since 1995. And I don't mean that in a, he's an old guy way, but in a, he has a lot of experience and a lot of things to share with us. He's a level three coach in the UK. He's also written course materials for the level three certification, which is now kind of evolving into a new kind of sphere, which we'll talk about. He's the co-founder of the triathloncoach.com, host of the high performance human podcast and He's also won Coach of the Year six times in the UK. Welcome to the show, Simon Ward. Thanks, Jesse. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining me. I don't, I always love doing the kind of, as you say, across the pond um, episodes because it's early morning for me or mid-morning and it's kind of late afternoon, early evening for you. Um, it's just one of those things that I think we take for granted that we have the ability to sit here and video chat mm-hmm. across the world yeah. in different time, you know, largely different time zones. Um, it's, this is kind of neither here nor there regarding triathlon, but I often tell people uh, that see, don't seem to believe me that we live in the future. Well, I do. I live in your future. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. But I just think about it. You think about like, I don't know how much of a, sci-fi fan you are but you think about like you know sci-fi shows from even 20 years ago and you've got a you know a handheld device where they're speaking video chatting with somebody and it's like that seemed so far off yet here we are with that ability mm. to do yeah. that right now yeah. so yeah mr the the little flip the little flip things that they used to have in star trek beam me up yeah. scotty and all that sort of stuff if but if only they had the transponder that would enable <laughs> me to travel around the world by just standing in a, in a in a little box and then a few seconds later i could walk out i'd have i'd be get rid of all of that schlepping around the airport all of the border controls all of the uh, eight <laughs> hours of sitting in a metal tube yeah. yeah maybe we'll get there one day i think there are problems with the physics of that and then also the yeah. philosophical side but yeah, um, that's a whole other kind of rabbit hole to get. Well, I down. just uh, yeah, and, and you you get that thing that sometimes comes up in comedy shows where somebody comes out with their head under their arm and they're right, <laughs> yeah, all the all the limbs in different positions. So as it as it pieces the atoms back together in uh, a different order. But yeah, yeah it would be it be... would be nice, wouldn't it, to to compress time a little bit to get rid of the uh, to get rid of the boring parts of travel. Yeah, well, in since you uh, coach athletes. 
I would think you probably don't have much commute, right? And uh, well, it depends. I I don't now uh, in the, in the current coronavirus times because all of our sessions have been uh, um, <clears throat> have been canned. I have started recently travelling back to the pool, but the pool's half an hour drive for me. It's on the other side yeah. of Leeds. Um, but I've uh, you know this is a lifestyle business for me. We were just talking pre-show about entrepreneurs, and mm -hmm. you know I, li I like to think of myself as an entrepreneur because I embrace new ideas and new technology, and I'm willing to try new things, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of failure, but, um, most of my, most of my business stuff has all, all been about, um, creating a lifestyle for me that, that enables me to travel the world and do the things that I like doing whilst earning mm -hmm. a living. And it may, and it also means then that most of what I do, I can write off as business expenses because it, it's a legitimate business trip. So, so now I, now I have clients all over the world. I'll, I'll like to pencil at least one trip a year to go and see them. So I might go to, uh, um, I might go to Dubai. I went to Dubai in February. I could go to Delhi. You know, I might go to Sweden. I might go. I might go to see somebody in California. I, I'll be going to right now. Actually, probably on this day, um, if if everything was normal, I'd be flying off to Hawaii for the Ironman World Championships, which is always mm -hmm. the second Saturday in October. So Hawaii's become a regular business trip for me. Um, I might I might go to Boulder to do some stuff for Training Peaks. So that might that, I might make that a month long trip to, to go to Boulder first and spend some time there and you know ride my bike and then go to Hawaii and then come back or I, I could go there in the winter and go skiing and do some stuff as well so it's like combining work and work and travel so yeah but in in the truest sense of the commute I, my my trip from the uh, to the office is about 15 steps yeah well that's that's the thing that I found a lot of people are realizing now and I I and my fiance have been work from home for years now and a lot of people, you know, prior to coronavirus would say to us, I don't know how you work from home. I don't know how you get anything done. And then now that they've been forced into the situation, they're like, I don't know how I'm going to go back into the office. I don't want to commute again. I don't want, you know, so there's, there's ups and downs, obviously. But as you said, there, there's a nice lifestyle component to it where it's like, Yes, I wake up and I pretty much start working within five minutes of waking up, though my brain never stops. So that's a little different for me. But I can also stop in the middle of the day and, hey, or like this morning, I'm going to go out for my run, get that done, and then come back, chat with you a little bit, go get some other work done after we're done here. It's not as compartmentalized and isolated like if I had to go to the office and I just couldn't do anything in the middle of the day. So it, it, there's a nice lifestyle component to it. Oh, you, you can definitely plan your own routine. I mean, yeah. my, my routine, I like, I like to get started early in the morning. I'm, I'm, I used to be up at sort of 5.36 because we used to swim at seven. So it's, you know, I'm in the car at 20 past six with my coffee, get to the mm. pool at 10 to seven, all that stuff stopped now. So um, my, the rhythm of my life's changed a little. I get probably get up about seven. I have a morning mobility and stretch routine. I do by the time I've sort of done my teeth and all of that stuff and uh, done my yoga breathing, everything. That's probably a half hour and I have a few little strength and conditioning exercises. That's probably a half hour routine I have every day. I try not to look at my phone for at least the first hour once I get up. So then I'm downstairs, do my, make my coffee, do a few more mobility exercises. So maybe it's 7.45, then I start working. If I, At the moment, I'm swimming at lunchtime. So in that four hours between 8 o'clock and 12, 12.30, I can get an awful lot done. Um, I try to get most of the work that I have done for the day done by then because yeah. I – 
I function better and I've, I've identified that I'm an owl. And so I function better in the morning. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to leave any tasks till the afternoon, it's usually just answering emails and things that don't require as much thought process as writing a program or putting a blog post together or, or something. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably do a bit of work on Saturday. I might do a bit of work on Sunday, but it's all, it all revolves around, you know, my cycling or going swimming or going mm-hmm. for a run. Yeah. It's interesting you say breaks. that because I'm, I'm pretty similar where it's like there's something about lunch or, or a little after lunch where it's like I really want to be done working for the day. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to do anything else, but like I want all my major tasks out of the way. I want my workout done. I want whatever major project I, you know, so thinking about entrepreneurship, this is a pretty common thing in at least my sphere that I live that you have one major task to do a day. And that's it. There's going to be little things, answer an email, all that kind of stuff. But as far as like major brain power devoted, just one thing a day, get that done. Cause it's all about results, right? doesn't matter how many hours you put in. It's only about what you produce. So I, I, it's, it's interesting you say that cause I I live pretty similarly. Um, See if I can wind us back to triathlon though. I, I was interested you know, you've kind of wound um, triathlon life into what you do. How, how, if we go back to, I'll, I'll say the nineties, I'm guessing maybe it'd been the eighties. Um, how did you get into triathlon to begin with? Was this just, you know, you saw Ironman kind of building up in, in steam and picked up the bug or, or how, how did that transition happen? No, I, I was sort of in the, I was on the triathlon, um, route before before Iron Man had really got got rolling I mean it, it the first time I was 78 the first major thing that most people recall from Iron Man was seeing a Julie Moss video with her crawling across the line mm-hmm. in Kona and you know and just right. she'd been leading and there's this tortuous bit of I think ABC footage where she's just can't control any of her bodily functions. She can't stand up. People can't help her. She's crawling along a lead drive. People are willing her to make it to the finish line. The girl that's in second place passes her, you know, and I'm like, wow, what's this event? I've got to find out more about this. Um, I'd, I'd finished doing a business degree in 1986. I then went to Australia, so I didn't have a gap year. I sort of had a gap. Well, my gap year was a bit, bit later on. Um, went to Australia. I'd read about, so I'd seen that video. I'd read about triathlon. Um, there was a thing called the Beach Ironman, the Surf Lifesaving Championships in Australia, which is um, swim, surf, ski, paddleboard, and and um, and then a little bit of running on the beach in between. I was quite captivated like that by that, and then I saw the Ironman, um, not the Ironman, the ITU World Championships in Perth, mm-hmm. just while I was living out there. Um, so I thought, oh, I'd like to do one of these when I get back. I'd finished my year in Australia, came back to the UK, got some. Been, I've been doing lots of bar work, so I got got a job running a. Um, running this wine bar in Harrogate, local town to me. And there was a, um, a fundraiser thing that we have annually now in the UK called Children, um, Children in Need. Happens every, uh, every autumn. And so the pub, the pub were doing something and I said, oh, I'm going to do a triathlon. So but, but burning platform, I was committed then. Uh, I found one that just happened to be actually, it's about three miles away from where I live now. Um, and I entered for that. It, it wasn't the traditional triathlon. It was, uh, you did a swim in the pool, then you had a 15 minute break while you got your bike gear together. There was no digital stuff. So you had a little piece of card that you took around to the start and each and somebody manually did a stopwatch, wrote down the start and finish time, calculated your thing. And then you took that piece of cards to the next one. And, you know, so it was swim, run, bike. 
And then about three weeks later, you got a whole sheet of typed, um, you know, sheets through the post, which had your results in. So no, no digital stuff at all then, all mm -hmm. manual. Um, so that that was that was that. I was quite, I, I did quite well. I think I came twenty fifth out of about five hundred people. So not too bad on on numbers training. So I decided I was going to commit to doing triathlon the next year still you know if you talk to people about triathlon nobody had heard of it the brownleys weren't even born then right um, you, you know who the brownies are they're the, oh, yeah. Olympic, the brothers and the olympic champions so the brownies weren't even born then uh the um the olympics hadn't even taken on triathlon so people go what triathlon is that like iron man so people had just started to hear about iron man mm -hmm. I, um I, I was working a conventional job then so nine to five selling storage equipment for for um, factories and warehouses but I'd always got this idea that I wanted to be a personal trainer so I was sort of working towards that and, and looking for the opportunity and then I, I was made redundant so rather than seeing that as a bad thing it was it, it gave me the opportunity to write well I haven't got a job now so I'm not giving anything up you know in for a penny in for a pound mm -hmm. let's see what happens what's, what's the worst that can happen I'll be back where I am now um, so that was that was in 1993 in 19 so I was, I was continuing to do triathlons then Started working as a personal trainer and a, a fitness instructor. Um, I was the first personal trainer in Leeds, that, one of the first that was had a mobile business visit. So I used to go around my van and all my equipment and visit people at their homes. Um, I did my first Ironman in 1995 in Canada, in Penticton. And then I wrote an article for um, a magazine then called UltraFit, which was jointly published in, in the UK and Australia. And um, it was like Howard trained for an Iron Man and, and all of this and a, and a um, 220 triathlon magazine asked me if I'd write an article as well so wrote this article and they were going to pay me 40 pounds and so I said well look can I have a little biog at the bottom and direct that towards a little classified ad at the back we're still in the era really as the internet was just getting going but it wasn't mm -hmm. a it was an academic thing then it wasn't right. really people like you and I using it so um Everything was still snail mail and telephone. So a little, little biog. And then I would get these letters from people saying, oh, I'm interested in doing a triathlon. I've read your article. Can you coach me? And so, uh, so it took off from there, really. And, and, and that was it. And so uh, I was busy doing my personal training and coaching people. And uh, they, I ran them side by side probably for 10 or 15 years until I decided to ditch the personal training and, um, and go all in with the triathlon coaching. On the back of reading a book called Essentialism, so if you wanted to re recommend a book to people, it, <laughs> okay. Essentialism would Essentialism would be a good one to start with. You know, it's funny. Not, so I'm probably showing my age. I'm a similar age to the Brownlings. I can't remember exactly when they were born, but I was born in '89, and, and so I'm probably showing my age here. But um, there's something I won't say romantic, but there's something nice about not having the digital like not having the digital aspect of advertising with the internet and all yeah. those kind of mediums. Like I'm familiar with, I'm more than proficient in those advertising mediums, but it's like, there's something nice about a print magazine where it's just, it doesn't seem like the response rate or like people's attention span really hones in on that so much anymore. It's like attention span so short. If I just feel like if, if I told people, Hey, you had to call me or had to write me a letter, I'm never going to hear from anyone now. You know, you you say that I I mentioned to you um, a bit earlier about Dan Kennedy. Dan Kennedy Dan Kennedy runs this uh, did run this thing called Glazer Kennedy Inside a Circle. He's a copywriter. 
so to share his ideas he he did all, he's done lots of books his books mm -hmm. are uh, knobs no bullshit um and he's probably straight talking he could be from yorkshire if he was from england but um, <laughs> so he lives in ohio uh, and I, I started to find out these things about dan i went to one of his conferences i used to get these little magazines a4 um it was like a comic it, it used to come through when the, the, the whole of the, all of the envelope was with advertising, promoting this conference or that thing or this mm -hmm. bit of coaching, you know, so no space was wasted. And I, I used to look forward to that. Like I did when I was 10, when I got my little comic, that, you know, like the Beano or the Dandy or the wizard or whatever comics you had, you know, the, like the Marvel mm -hmm. comic that came through. I used to devour that thing from, from cover to cover, reading the articles and circling little ideas that I could use in my business to, to sort of develop my mailing list or, you know, little, little, things that I could, little letters, circular letters that I could get for people to recommend me. Um, and I've still got all of those copies and I still go through them. And, and there was something about having a solid hard copy that I could sit down. Um, I like the idea now when everything's digital of not having to look at a screen and looking at real paper mm -hmm. with real print in it. Um, I like the idea that I can write notes on it and then go back to it later. I've still got, as I say, I've still got all the copies into folders um, in my office and I go back to them. I share them with people. You know, I've got, I've got things that I photocopied that I send out. Um, and I do, I, I do wonder whether that sort of medium of will make a comeback, you know, cause everything's got a life cycle and, and right. things go full circle. I wonder now that we've almost made print media extinct whether then somebody will take it on and go, actually, do you know what? I'm going to go old school here and I'm going to pr produce a newsletter that I'm going to send out to people in the mail because, you know, when you get a letter that's not a circular from the bank or from the energy right. company, it's quite nice, isn't it? When you get something that you can actually read that's not demanding something of you. Yeah, well, it, you know, I, I think it, we're probably already towards that trend because um, I know, so like, I don't know if you're familiar with Hammer Nutrition, but they like they send out a magazine with, and they're promoting their products, but they send out a magazine. I don't know if it's quarterly. I think so, with articles and then you know advertisements for their products and that kind of stuff. And they already kind of cater to that. But then on top of that, you see like small bookstores are starting to come back after they've been kind of decimated with digitization mm -hmm. and, you know, Amazon and all that. Now these, I'll call them boutique, but that, that may be a little bit obtuse. Like it's not, they're there. It's a niche, right? It's not tiny in the sense that nobody wants to go. It's tiny in the sense that it's not the prevailing way to get your book anymore. But it does have a market because there are, I think there are plenty of people now that are getting to the point where they're like, I just don't, I don't want to stare at a screen anymore. You know, I stare at screens all day. I'm tired of staring at screens. I just, I just want a physical book and well, it, well, I don't want to support, you know, Amazon or whatever it is. So I'm going to go to my bookstore. Well, equally record stores I've been reading are making a comeback as well. You know, people and, are now vinyl. Getting, yeah. Um, vinyl rec record players like you and i probably had when we were well i definitely had when i was a student you know i'm a record player there i had I one when i was younger yeah a cassette deck and you know i had all my lps which i got rid of and i should have done but i <laughs> got all my lps and you could look at the cover you could you get the gatefolds so we had the story about the band and how they made the album and then all of that went by the buyers we got cd roms and then we got 
you know Spotify and Amazon and iTunes and you know the 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 iPod and all of that sort of stuff. But now, um, record stores and vinyl records are definitely making a comeback. Mm-hmm. And again, so you know, go things go full circle, don't they? Yeah, it it kind of makes me wonder um, because you've been around uh, long enough. Again, it's not in a not in a derogative way. But it, no, it gives this, you. I'm fifty. I'm fifty six. You might as well tell everybody. <laughs> well, no, but I, I mean, it gives you a good perspective. It's just like, like when I talk about or to, um, if you probably paid attention for triathlon, Barb Lindquist. Um, yeah, yeah, Bob, yeah, yeah. So I, Barb's a former coach. He's a friend of mine. Um, I had the you know fortune of learning from her for a number of years and be able to go to her clinics and stuff, and you know, so she got to race as a pro late nineties, early two thousands and, and lived through the advent of here we are Olympic triathlon starting in 2000. She went 2004, but there's been a lot of changes in that time in terms of general recognition by people of what triathlon is. Like you said, Oh, the Ironman, I still get that here. I live in the Midwest, which is the middle of the country here in the U S and I still get that from most people. If I say triathlon, it's, oh, Ironman. Or even family members say, oh, are, are you training for a triathlon? I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. Like, this is a lifestyle. This is an yeah. all the time thing. So I'm just wondering, is there anything that sticks out to you coming from, starting from completely analog, writing down times on note cards race to where we are now with, Televised ITU, you know, triathlon becoming more, more mainstream. I it still hasn't superseded cycling by any means, but you can watch it on TV now. So anything that sticks out in that time frame, it's really been a, a significant change in culture, recognition, any of that stuff. Oh yeah, definitely the Olympics. I think for triathlon in mm-hmm. two thousand, you know, um, they changed. Triathlon was always non-drafting, so there always had to be a gap. Um, yeah. The, the ITU decided that, that they had to make it more spectator-friendly. Obviously, they were talking to the IOC about how to get it into the Olympics, so they didn't want people just disappearing on a bike for 25 miles in a, in a, in a train. Um, you know, yeah. and I've, I remember watching a, a televised triathlon in the UK, which is just like watching paint dry because it was one guy <laughs> out on the front on his own, <laughs> right. and they didn't, they didn't have the sort of multi-camera footage technology that they have now and streaming video like they have with the, with the Tour de France, maybe. So it'd just be one video of one guy cycling. It's not very exciting at all. You know, for, for people like me, it was like, wow, look at that guy there. Look at his, how relaxed he is. Like everybody else is like, what else is happening? You know, yeah. so um, the, the Olympics, uh, they changed the way the sport was run. Um, the drafting format mm-hmm. um, made it different for different athletes. There was a divergence from, you know, I mean, if you look back to before Barb Lindquist, Karen Smyers was the, um, I think she was one of the first people to win Ironman world title and the ITU world title in the same year. Mm-hmm. Mark Allen, Mark Allen did that. Greg Welsh did that. I think Chris McCormack might have done that. There aren't many athletes. Right. Um, oh, Jan Fredino's won Fredino Olympics, recently. obviously, and, and Alistair, yeah. yeah, he's got the potential to win um, Ironman, but yeah. he's not done it yet. So there aren't many now that can, that can but, but not certainly not at the same time, you know, Fredino wouldn't have been able to win the Ironman at right. the same time as the Olympics. So there's been a divergence in the type of athlete. So definitely focusing on either 
ITU racing or long distance racing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, the Olympics definitely. Um, certainly in the UK, the Brownleys and London Triathlon and the Brownleys, you know, came at the same time. They were at the they were at the top of their you know their performance peak if you like for, for that one certainly Alistair was he'd been dominant uh in, in a just before and after 2012 so as a package as well two brothers mm -hmm. you know um being right there Johnny getting penalized you know being denied a silver because of some yeah. over overzealous official um and and a sort of like a an uncut toenail if you like um so the Brownleys definitely is a package, definitely catapulted triathlon, you know. So we've been on a cycling camp in Mallorca, getting, up, get, getting out to go out on the bikes at nine o'clock. There's guys there that are drinking, you know, they're only there for a drinking holiday. And they're saying, right. well, are, you, are you guys triathletes? And yeah, yeah. Do you know them Brownleys? I like them Brownleys, right? These, <laughs> this is guys that you just go in the pub that would probably watch the darts and the soccer. And they're talking about the Brownleys of this minor sport. Mm -hmm. And yet, because, because of who they are and, and the, the, the brother thing, you know, it, yeah. it's catapulted the sport. So I, def I definitely think that. I, um, I am man, I couldn't tell you when Ironman really started to roll. Um, I had a tattoo when I, when I did my first one. So that was 1995 and, you know, very, very few people did Ironman. Then it was probably eight, eight key races in, in various continents around the world. Now there's, oh goodness knows how many Ironman, 30 oh, wow. or 40. But it's in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, I really think it started to explode, probably when private equity got involved and they wanted mm -hmm. to make a, a, a return. So that there's that as well. So, and it was, I think perhaps as the marathon boom started to tail off, the next thing people wanted to do was to do an Ironman, you know, so it was, became a bucket list thing. So it's definitely yeah. a trend now that I've seen with coaching that you've got a lot of one and done people mm -hmm. that come in. Um, whereas, there's guys that were doing Ironman when I started that are still doing them now, you know, yeah. nearly 25 years later, they're still doing them because they're lifers. And it's, and you mentioned earlier, it's, it's a lifestyle thing. Right. You know, um, you, you, you don't just do triathlon. You're, you're, that's, that's your identity and uh, mm. that's how you live your life. So yeah, I, I think those, those are the significant moments. Um, certainly in the UK. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it, it I certainly grew up with the the ad right in right in the advent of it coming to the Olympics, and I think the first one I watched was two thousand eight. Um, but keeping in mind that, so I started running and I ran through college and then got in triathlon afterwards. But it, I was pretty much I like to say I lived under a rock. I did my own thing. I, you know, like I, so I ran, but like, I didn't follow the, you know, the big names of running. It was just like, I, I wanted to run. I wanted to be really good at it, but I didn't care what everybody else was doing. Mm. <laughs> so then it's, I started to get into kind of international sports at that time. I didn't understand American football. So I, I just didn't care like everybody else did. So I think like I first watched my first world cup in 2006 when Italy won and then 2008 with triathlon and that to me, and again, it may be because of the age I was and growing up in it, but that seemed like the thing to do or the thing that was coming up. I mean, Ironman was around, but because of the distance of it, 
it almost seemed not unattainable isn't quite right but as you mentioned the this sort of like shot on the single person out by themselves it's not yes. as exciting as draft legal watching draft legal racing draft legal so that that's where it, it just becomes interesting to me to ask you since obviously there's an age difference and you were you did your first iron man when i was six so you've seen much more of the sport change mm. it, it's you know because i have my own perspectives about it obviously and sometimes it's easy for people like me or people younger than me even to take for granted like all the technology we have all the opportunities the high visibility of the sport the ease of finding a coach all of those things so much easier now after this sport has grown over the last what we're we're approaching what 40 some odd years now um i think we're getting close to 50 i have to i, have to, I can't remember when the first first uh, official triathlon was supposed to be in the 70s 76 76 i think 76 in 76 around then it disputed different people say different things right. but somewhere in somewhere in san diego first iron man was 1978 so we've um we're coming around. We've we've done forty years of Iron Man, forty-two years. This will be mm. the first year where it's not happened. Actually, first ever time when it's yeah. when it's not happened in a year. Yeah. But we did have we did have two back in nineteen eighty-two. So they've always been. <laughs> they've always had. So they've always had one in the can if you like. What a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. They're getting it in early and didn't know about it. It's. Have you seen? And again, because I kind of live under a rock, I don't pay attention to it. But I know. Um, so as I was getting out of college, trying to get into sport and become a pro, it seemed like there was a lot of money in triathlon. You know, we even just, so a few hours North of me was high V with the biggest prize purse in the, in the world at that time. Um, winner was 250,000. It beat out the world championships for how much prize money it was paying. Um, and then, you know, high V's fallen off. Then there's Dextro energy triathlon series with ITU and then, I'm not sure who's in charge of that series now as far as corporate sponsorship, but it seems like it's tailed off a little bit. Do you think we've plateaued or is there still, there's still room to grow? Yeah. I mean, well, we've got the professional triathlon organization, our professional triathletes organization, um, mm -hmm. which you might've seen as PTO. So that uh, interesting. I did a podcast with Dave Scott the other week. Dave's Dave's been instrumental in setting up PTO. Um, but he, he, talked about how he tried to set something up back in the eighties with the guys that were racing full time then. And it just didn't work because they were athletes trying to do it. They really needed professional management, which is what they've got now with the, with the management team that they've got. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a really, a, a, almost like a union for the athletes. Um, and they've been really good. They've been really good for the athletes during the coronavirus, you know, with the funding that they've got and or with the investment they've got in, in helping some of the lesser known athletes to, to sort of stay afloat. If you like, for the for the top few, you know, if you're Jan Fredino, if you're Daniela Reef, if you are Alistair Brownlee, um, Lionel Sanders, people like that, that, and that's a small handful of people in both um, in ITU, which is the Olympic version World Triathlon Series, and and also Ironman. There's a small handful who are living a nice, comfortable living. Yeah, and and you know, like like you'd expect at the top of any sport. But if you think about tennis or golf 
or motor racing, even NASCAR, which is you know largely U.S. North North American sports. Right. But still, the the leading drivers in NASCAR are earning millions a year, and they're then they're international or they're national heroes, national celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, so compared to the to compared to the leading athletes in in most sports, um, you know triathletes are not particularly well rewarded mm-hmm. um, for the for the amount of effort. You think about, I think. $150,000. I might, might be slightly wrong on the figure there for winning Ironman, but that's eight hours and all the training. You can't do many of those in a year. And then yeah. you compare that to somebody winning the US. Um, well, they're just playing the French Open tennis now, but they've just played the US Open. It's probably a million dollar, a million dollar check for the winner. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but even, even the guys that get knocked out in the first round probably get $50,000. So huge. Yeah. And, and all, obviously all of that's down to TV coverage and, and, um, and media rights and everything else. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's money in it, but then there's guys that I know that win Ironman 70.3 races and some of the, some of the lesser well-known Ironman races that might, they'll, they'll win 10 or 15,000 for crossing the line first, but then when they've paid their local tax, that'll come down to 10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've had to travel to the events because not there aren't many of them would get travel expenses and and accommodation covered. So that might cost them a couple of grand if they're flying to America. So you know they've got eight grand, but they're probably not going to be at a race for another month. Right. So unless they've got some decent sponsorship coming in, um, you know, winning and winning prize money is um, is important for them to pay the rent. Never mind buying themselves a new Ferrari or uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, you know, a villa in the in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, I know. Um... I don't know that there's a lot of transparency on this, but I know Cody Beals, who's a Canadian pro, and he's coming up on the full Ironman circuit now. He's starting mm-hmm. starting to really um, pick up steam. He's been winning 70.3s for a number of years now. He did a post, a blog post. Ah, I can't even think when. It, maybe 2014 or so. He did a very transparent post on, these are my earnings and expenses for this year. And it's like, as a full-time pro, I think he made, I don't know, under 30,000 US for the year. And that's with winning races, having sponsors, just an insanely low amount of money for how much work it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about, talking about prize money. And uh, my parents watch golf. My, my nephew's trying to be a pro golfer. And so I, I can't remember what. A tournament it was but I looked up and the, the winner was I don't know three or four million dollars and all the way down to like hundredth place you still get like 30 30 grand for showing yeah. up yeah <laughs> so not that it's easy to get there but yeah the, the the depth of money in some of those sports is so much higher and it it seems like we should be able to get there in triathlon because it's it's an affluent sport I know when um, USA Triathlon puts out their figures, or if you if you want to buy ads in any of the triathlon magazines, they're always like households that do this have an average six figure income. Yeah, so it's like mm-hmm. it, it it caters to a crowd with money, yet somehow we can't quite get the pro side and the money there. So if you and I were sitting down, Simon, and we were going to make a TV series, we were going to figure out how to make triathlon better to watch. And get get more guys that are just going into the pub drinking beer to watch it, and we don't have the Brownleys. How do we get them to watch it? Oh, uh, you know, professional professional triathletes organization have been thinking about this 
you know, you, you need personalities, don't you? Yeah. Um, look, look what, uh, and I know they've talked to um, the guy who runs uh, UFC cage fighting. Mm-hmm. Now you look at that, they have celebrities. Look at, look, Conor McGregor was a, a builder, a plumber or something in Ireland, but now he's this huge personality. He's talking about fighting Manny Pacquiao now, no yeah. doubt for many, many millions of dollars. He's not even a boxer. <laughs> he's just going to learn how to box for a few months. I mean, he's, he's pretty handy, you know, he, he can stand yeah. his Floyd Mayweather. Um, but still, it's the, it's, the, it's the value of that pay-to-view on um, HBO or what it, whichever TV program. That's, that's yeah. what we need to do is how are we going to convince people to pay-per-view? You mm-hmm. know, um, are we gonna make, how are we going to make it exciting? Um, how are we going to get people to commit? You know, it's not necessarily about turning up to the, the events, although when they, have the race, when they have the racing leads, you know, it starts out of town, but then they end up cycling and running around the city. And the streets are absolutely packed. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole city's closed off. The streets are packed and we always get really good turnout. There must have been, when we had the Olympic final down in London, there was half a million people in, 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 in uh, Hyde Park. I mean, most of Yorkshire sort of, sh- they, locked the, they locked the gates when they left and the last person turned out the lights and we all went down to London to watch Alistair and Johnny race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and we have the tour de Yorkshire that comes here. That's, that's always well popular. So there is, there is spectator sports, but we need, we need personalities. We need to, uh, we perhaps need some marketing to, hype those people up to maybe mm-hmm. create a bit of friction amongst them, even if it's, even if it's manufactured, you know, look at W, um, I can never remember which one it is now, WWF, I think it is, but the wrestling, mm-hmm. you know, and how they have the people in the ring, you know, oh, calling yeah, out the others. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's just, but people watch, it's like a soap opera, but people watch, Yeah, um, you know, maybe a bit more accessibility to the athletes. They're, they're trying that now, understanding what they go through, understanding what's happening when they're racing, maybe, maybe a little bit more, a little bit more insight into the athletes while they're racing, maybe some real time stuff where we can see, you know, at this moment, Alistair's, uh, Lionel Sanders heart rate is, is 190 now, you know, yeah. it's almost at its maximum, but he's still getting dropped. What's he going to do to make a comeback? You know, big, yeah. big dramatization. Um, yeah, a difficult one. I think it, I, I think you're right with the personalities. I think it also starts with the commentators. And, and maybe the issue is more that it, it seems like the vast majority of triathletes I've met are often soft-spoken, well-thought, intelligent individuals that don't have huge personalities like Conor McGregor. Like you just don't find that very often in this sport no i mean there's a few you know if you look at lionel talk about lionel sanders lionel sure. just, he has his own youtube channel yeah. he's so transparent lionel he'll sit there the day after the race and go man yesterday was such a disappointment you know and he'll yeah. just bear his absolute heart and you're sobbing you get in the tissues and you're like oh stop lionel stop um, and then he'll come back and he go, okay, I've had time to think about this. What I said yesterday was, you know, it wasn't all that bad, you know, but this is what I need to do now. And he, it's almost like his own little Lionel soap opera. He's got a guy that follows him around with a camera all the time. So they're always creating little videos. Mm-hmm. Next, we're in the pain cave as Lionel goes back to the, back to the uh, drawing board to punish himself for last year's demeanors and uh, see if he can go one step further. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, but, we, but you're right, we do... Perhaps most people are so, the training is so hard, you know, 30, 40 hours a week that, that these guys haven't got time to be, to be getting on social media too often and yeah, uh, creating their own little have, videos. I think it, it's, I'm generalizing here, obviously, but I think it's two things. One, 
a lack of time and simply energy. Like after you've been training 30 hours a week, who has the energy to do much of anything, mm. you know? So there's a little bit of that, but then also like what kind of personality has the ability to train that kind of training schedule? You know, like, it, like go back to Conor McGregor. He is an explosive personality in an explosive sport. That all makes sense. You want to go tell him to sit on a bike for eight hours and pedal? I, I mean, I think he'd do it if it was in, if he believed it would help him be a champion in the ring, but just for the purpose of becoming better at cycling. Mm. I don't think that personality fits well in that category. So I think maybe yeah. that's part of it too. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. They haven't asked me to be the marketing director yet anyway. <laughs> Peter, you know, so I need to keep my light under a bushel really until not, not, not give them too many ideas. <laughs> maybe we should, here's the, here's the difficult part. Uh, getting footage and being able to use it uh, without having issues. I see, I see these people do this on, like I was watching, um, I was just watching a, a, a YouTube video when Mo Farah broke the one hour record. Um, oh yes. Yeah. And, and this guy commentating on it, but he had taken, you know, NBC, ABC's, whoever's coverage it was taking it, cut it up, you know, so you weren't watching the whole thing unru- uninterrupted, but he's just playing their coverage and, and talking over it. But I'm like, well, that's a copyright issue. If that wasn't such an issue, like you and I really could just say, Hey, let's go grab whoever's coverage and let's cut this and commentate it and try to add some excitement to it and then get it going. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that might work. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could, you see, and I think then that you, so you, there seems to be two different, two types of commentator that I've, I've seen. I mean, I do some, I do some live commentary at, at races mm-hmm. where our goal really is to make people feel like they're in their own adventure that, yeah. that we're making the day great for them. We're calling them across the line. We're calling the name when they come out of transition, you know, with, with they, they write as little comments and they've forgotten that they've written them six months previously. So we read them out and they're like, man, you told them about my dad dying or losing 20 stone. How did you know? And I'm like, well, you, you wrote it. Yeah. Um, but, but that, so that's different, but, but you know, on TV coverage, you, you generally have either a commentator who is a professional commentator, but maybe that's not his main sport. So he does some, he does some background. So it's like getting your NFL commentator to go and right. commentate on the ba- on the basketball. He's good at there, but he's not an expert. Right. It's like and then, uh, Joe Buck. We we give Joe Buck a lot of hard a hard time here in Kansas City because with the World Series a few years back, he didn't do a great job. <laughs> yeah. But he, he so, does everything. Yeah. So you get you get a commentator who does everything, who learns a bit about it, and he can talk. He, he's he's got, he's a good commentator, mm-hmm. but he doesn't perhaps have the insight into the athletes. He'll have a little bit, and then you've got probably a triathlete who's an analyzer, like like your ex professional ball player. Yeah. Um, but he but he perhaps doesn't have the commentary skills to get the excitement across. He's talking about all the technical stuff. Yeah. And what you need is what you need is somebody who's got great personality who can waffle on a bit, who can talk about some other things but also knows intimately about the sport what's happening you know what why is why is he doing that now there's some great there's there's um 
on the Tour de France coverage that we have here in Britain, there's a guy called David Miller. David, he's got a great personality. I mean, he's had a bit of a checkered past because he got banned for drugs. But when you listen to him talking about the races, he'll tell you why. Why is the team, why is that team not chasing? Oh, well, they're working with that team because they'll know that this guy's going to fade later on in their own and then they'll come on for the... T- so he can tell you what those riders are thinking because he's just exited the sport a few years ago. He knows, mm-hmm. he knows the riders. He knows how everybody thinks. He knows what communications they're getting. So with him and the other guy that's commentating, they make a great team because they tell you the story rather than just commentating on what you're actually seeing on the um, on the screen. Right. And I think and I think that's perhaps what some some sports are lacking. They're too technical, and so people don't get enthused by what they're hearing. Yeah, I think we definitely get bogged down by that with triathlon because it's so it can be so gear focused at yeah. time. Like hmm. ah, I just. I got this new bike and it's this new, you know, model. And I've got my, I got my Garmin watch so I can check my pace and all this is like, that's great and everything. But it's kind of like, um, we're touching on this. I, I think you made this graphic. It's like that uh, you had this, I'll call it the like training performance pyramid where like the base, you're like, you know, healthy living and then triathlon training on top of that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 So it's like you had like the gear stuff's all the way at the top. It's like just, little icing okay we could add that but that's not necessary <laughs> to the essentials of what we're doing here. yeah yeah i feel like that's well, the I same think, thing i think also if you ever listen to coverage of australia rules football or some australian cricket you get some commentators who are like they say things that that you really want them to say that you might go oh did he just say that mm-hmm. now uh, everything's so politically correct these days that you have to you have to be really careful about anything you say because you're going to upset some movement or some group of people because you've said something. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, if when you've got those when you've got those commentators who who say it as it, as it is, mm-hmm. you know, and and use language that's not in the UK, we call it BBC language. It's sort of the right. Queen's English, pro- proper and correct. But yeah. if you if you actually use some local vernacular without swearing, but just something that's a little bit more colourful, mm-hmm. um, then that can all people will also tune in to listen to that commentator mm-hmm. yeah you've always got to be very careful together, though so yeah, yeah. If, if we can get those all together get the comp yeah. get the right commentator yeah. get the yeah. insights into you know what's going on at the race get some more of those you know in-depth bios like like lionel does but pre-race you know um like i think about watching the Olympics when, when Gwen won, I think Barb was on there with um, an interview. I'm pretty sure she was. I feel like I texted her when it came on. Um, but you get, get those interviews with people, you know, to, to cut into the race. So it's like, okay, maybe we're on lap three of lap six on the bike section and you, Paxers, you know, we've got a big gap between lead group and chase group and it's closing, but we, you know, we've got a minute to swap between this. It's like adding a little bit of excitement by interjecting those stories and those interviews on top of everything. I feel like we could get this done, but I, who's going to get it done and how is it going to get done? Well, I'll give you an example there. Let's take the Rio Olympics. So Alistair and Johnny knew that uh, coming out of the swim, they'd be near the front you know, they wouldn't be leading, but they're near the front. And you know pretty much who, who's going to be alongside them. You know, who the, right. they know who the good swimmers are. They know who's going to be in the second pack and therefore who's going to have to bridge across. So you come out and then after a couple of miles, there's this steep little hill 
Yeah. So they have this, they have this tactic, right? Let's just smash it on the swim. Let's try and get a group. Let's try and get in the front. Right now we're going to race through transition one. We're going to get in the bike. We're going to see who's there. Right. Let's, let's try and get the group down to five or six people mm-hmm. because there's, there's, there's like four or five people that can run for that gold medal, but we know that two of them or three of them might not even be in that first group on the bike. Right. So what we've got to do is we've got to get on the bike and then we've got to absolutely hammer now to get up that hill and we've got to hurt everybody. We've got to hurt the people in our group. We've got to try and work together to get a gap. Because if we've got somebody that's working together with us that's not, that's not going to outrun us, they might still get a bronze medal. So it's in their interests to work with us to try mm-hmm. and get a gap. Because with, if they were with those other people, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get a medal at all. So they might finish eighth. So let, let's try and get a gap and let's hammer it. And if we can hammer it for the first four laps, we know that we'll have a minute. And we know that if we've got a minute getting off the bike, then we can out we can outrun them for you know we've a minute of protection nobody's going to catch a minute on us right. so be explaining what's happening why and then okay so you've got another guy in the back there another english guy why isn't he working hard to get into the front group why doesn't he want to get up there so he can get a medal well he's there as a teammate he doesn't want to work he actually yeah. just wants to sit in so if they do get up to the front group then he's he's another person in there but he's not going to contribute to get up to the group and actually everybody knows that this guy's desperate to win a medal so he's going to work hardest to get up to the group so we can sit on his coattails and let him pull us up to the group because if we do, then he'll be tired, we'll be fresh, and then we've got a better chance of beating him for a medal. So being able to explain all that, why certain people are working, why they're not, why this Mm -hmm. tactic's working, those are the things you need to be able to explain to the listener. You know, why why doesn't it appear like anybody's working to catch them back? You know, what's, what's happening when they come out of, you know, why does that guy keep getting dropped off the back every time they go around a turn? Um, so, yeah, there you yeah. go. We've got we've got the format now, right? Jesse, just we got, just we got to put it together. I think yeah, well, I, you've got you've got your entrepreneurial head on today. I can tell. <laughs> I'm always looking for new opportunities. I think maybe I think maybe you and I need to get together after the show and, and write um, write a, le- a letter or yeah, let's let's write a letter, an actual letter instead of sending an email to <laughs> uh, the, the pro the pro group now, and we will say. We're going to commentate all these sports. We're going to put them on TV. We'll do trial run on YouTube or something. Get people, get people together. It's good. It's, it's across the pond. You've got your perspective. I got my perspective. It'll be good. We can send, we can send it by pigeon as well, just to stay with the old school theme. Yeah. I mean, you know, you really, you want to make a statement, right? And I feel like a pigeon showing up with a letter and pooping on somebody's desk. That makes a statement. <laughs> well if we had a little gopro there to film it then it would make a nice little video for youtube as well so we got to stay with the technology a little bit yeah it's marrying the old and the new together i think that's that's the way to go <laughs> Excellent. Um, simon as we're starting to run down on time a little bit um so there's a question i'm asking everybody this season of this show because it transcends sports it transcends people um, and everybody answers it a little bit differently. So I'm asking everybody, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Oh man, what do you think the purpose of sport is? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> so let, let me go back f- for me particularly. Um, the purpose of sport for me when I was little, because I've, I've been playing sport in various forms since I can was old enough to walk the purpose of sport for me when I was little was to expend energy because I would have had you know if they'd if they'd had a 
a, a clinical diagnosis for it, for it back then, I would have been diagnosed as having that um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't have had Ritalin or whatever you prescribed for it over right. there then. So, so the nearest best prescription was to just go run around until you fell asleep. Yeah. Um, so that that was where I was, you know, I was quite good at sport. I played football, I played rugby, I played cricket, I, I did the athletic stuff, I played tennis, I did all of those things. And I think that was my mum's tactic was to just wear me out because if I didn't, I would just talk her to death. I mean, you can tell that I like talking. So imagine if what what I'd have been like without without the um, the involvement of sport. Ah, um, on a bigger perspective. You know, I mean, sport, some people like competing, don't they? I was I was heavily competitive when I was young. And I can remember being, even if we lost a a, competi- a football match against the, 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 the other class from the same year, I would I would cry when we got beaten. I was a terrible loser and I wanted to win all the time. And I, I'm, not, I'm not like that anymore. I see the personal satisfaction in achieving something now. So there's, I suppose it depends on your personality. I played a lot of team sports when I was younger. There's definitely a bonding that comes from team sports and there's definitely some life skills that you learn from helping each other out, from understanding that in a team, um, there are there are people who have their skills. You know, you've got the guy who always gets the glory because he kicks the goal, scores the touchdown, you, you know, um, does all that. But he he couldn't he couldn't uh, he couldn't achieve that without the support of the other people. You've got the guys who like I played rugby, so you've got the big guys who are, you know, might be classed as being a bit overweight, but they have a place in the scrum. You've got the tall beanpole guys who are supposed to catch the ball. You've got the skinny guys that are really fast that go on the wings. Everybody has their part mm-hmm. and you all come together to make up a team. So, you know, you talked about building a business. That's the great entrepreneurs and business leaders understand that, you know, they need people who are better than them at certain things and put them all together. And absolutely. You know, so there's, there's definitely a, a team element. And even if you're in an individual sport like triathlon, you know, we talk about Lionel, we talk about Alistair, we talk about Barb. They will say that they couldn't have achieved their success without other people being in mm-hmm. their team, their coach, yep. their training partners, their, any, any of the medical practitioners, the people who look after their bike, the, the nutritionists. Um, so there's that, so there's that team element. This um, sport enables people to um, achieve achieve things that perhaps they didn't think were possible. So it gives them an opportunity to, to express and find out what their body is capable of and, and what their mind's capable of. You know, particularly you see this when people cross the finish line of an Ironman, that they, they've done something that they never thought that they would be able to do. It doesn't matter what time they do. Just, I remember explaining to a personal training client that I'd done this Ironman and he went and told his mother and she said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Nobody could do that in a day. And she, he said, no, uh, she said, how many days did it take him? No, he did it all in one day, mum. It took him, took him just under 11 hours. That's just ridiculous. It's impossible for a human being. So I had to take the photograph <laughs> and the medal and the certificate into prover. And she said, how, how is it possible for somebody to do that? So, but, but, you know, just before I did my first one, I, I didn't think it was possible either. So, mm-hmm. um, it, I mean, sport is, I think perhaps sport in the, in the recent months during the coronavirus outbreak has, has probably shown people just how much they value competition mm-hmm. um, because it's been taken away from them. I think um, depending on where you live, being able to go out for a bike ride or a run or a swim with your mates has been restricted or denied. So people have realized how much they get the social aspect of just running with people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you and I can, you and I can communicate via the powers of technology with Zoom across half the world. But actually, 
I've noticed that when I get to, if I got together with you now and we, and we sat having a chat over a beer, I would find that so much more fulfilling right? because, because there's been another human being sat in front of me. And I think I, I'd, I'd not realized the importance of that until that was taken away and then, and then, um, you know, sort of gradually uh, allowed back into your life. So sp- sports definitely got that social aspect, which I think perhaps a lot of people haven't, well, probably it's highlighted a lot more in the last few months. So yeah. I think it's different things to different people. Yeah. Well, that's why and I asked that, the question. Well, and that's, that would, that should have been prefaced by a typical coach's response to it depends. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's, that is the perfect coach's response because it, it always does depend um, on a lot of things, but, but I mean, that's, that's why I asked the question. I, and I think your first response is fun because I definitely haven't gotten that before just expending energy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the different, the varying meanings and degrees of meaning and philosophical to completely, um, what do I say? Um, completely like normal, just expending energy reasons that people have of participating in sport or what they see the purpose of sport is, is interesting, which is why I ask because it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter you know, everybody has an answer, but everybody always has a different answer. It doesn't matter if they're in the same sport, different sport. I don't think anybody's given the same answer to that question. So that's why I ask it. Um, Simon, if people want to see what you're up to, coaching advice, any of that, where can people find you? Well, I am all over social media like a rash, as you'd expect. <laughs> uh, so probably the best place to find me is on Facebook. So I have my own personal profile is simon.ward1. Um, I have a, uh, a Facebook group for triathletes, which is called the Triathlon Coach Cafe. Um, it's free. It's free to join, but we, we like people to, to apply to join because then we ask questions uh, and those questions give us opportunities to create content through podcasts and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's the Triathlon Coach Cafe. Um, and that's available. That's open to anybody that's doing triathlon, you know, so beginners, long distance, short distance, whatever. Uh, I have my own podcast, which you kindly mentioned. That is, um, I, I think we're in a hybrid phase at the moment because it's still known as the triathlon coach channel on, on iTunes, but I have started calling it the high performance human podcast because we're trying to broaden the reach beyond just triathletes and mm-hmm. talk about more than just training for triathlon. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, they're the main ones. Uh, I have other channels, but what I'll do is I'll send you the link tree um, sure. thing. And then there's probably about half a dozen different um, avenues, channels there like YouTube and Instagram and uh, yeah, everything else. I think yeah. So if you're, well. whether you're on YouTube or iTunes or Spotify, in the description, if you go below wherever the player is, that should be down in the description. And it'll link yep. to all yep. the other kind of stuff that, that Simon has. That's correct. So, all right. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Simon. That's been great fun. Thank you.